Thank you. Uh, this talk is about obesity, inequality, insecurity, and social welfare. There's been a lot of discussion about the impact of social welfare on insecurity and to a lesser degree on its relationships with obesity. So what I want to do is to try to give an update on uh, some of the uh, aspects that have happened. But first of all, in relation to obesity, but first of all to talk about um, how obesity, inequality and insecurity are related to each other. That's the first half. And then I'm going to go on to talk about how inequality, insecurity and social welfare might be tied together. So to start off with obesity, inequality and insecurity, um, what are they? Well, they're overlapping factors, overlapping, overlapping things. Um, economic inequality uh, concerns itself with the variation between people or populations in their incomes and their assets. So, um, whereas economic insecurity is about the likely continued solvency of a person or populations into the future according to their continued employment, their welfare provision, savings, pensions, and so on. So, you know, for example, if you're a postdoc and you've got um, a three-year contract, then you're going to be worried about your f future continued employment. So this is insecurity, and this is potentially very stressful. Um, similarly, there are people who are worried about their pensions into the future, and this is another type of insecurity. However wealthy you might be, you might be worried about your pension. However well-educated you are, you might be worried about your future employment. So, in the United States, there's very good evidence about insecurity and how it cuts across socioeconomic position. <clears throat> so, across the years, from the 1970s to uh, 2013, uh, there is uh, clear evidence of tracking of unemployment, regardless of whether you're a white collar, uh, in a white collar category, of a service category, or blue collar category of job, unemployment rates um, do track changes in the uh, economic cycle. So everybody's affected. What about inequality and obesity? The more unequal a country is, the higher is the uh, obesity rate. And this has been demonstrated by uh, Kate Pickett uh, and her colleagues that showed that the uh, ratio of the top 20% to bottom 20% of income is pretty well correlated with the percentage of uh, uh, people who are obese, um, whether men or women. It's a, not a very tight association, but a clear association um, that, is, uh, that, that is found with the United States being the most uh, economically unequal country, being at the top, and Japan being the least economically unequal country at the bottom. The Scandinavian countries also sitting somewhere down towards the bottom where obesity rates are lower and inequality rates are lower. Um, this is well summarized um, in a book called The Spirit Level by Wilkinson, Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett, who wrote about why more equal societies almost always do better. Um, so this relationship between obesity and income inequality um, also applies to uh, things like trust in society, levels of mental illness, uh, teen birth rates, um, imprisonment rates. That's internationally. 
um, across the different states of the United States, um, <clears throat> the, the relationships are also there for the same things, but also for life expectancy, infant mortality rates, um, and for homicide rates. So it's a very clear and strong relationship. The income inequality doesn't just affect poor people, it affects everybody in society. One thing that's contributed to global obesity is globalization. That's stuff moving around the world. Uh, the slide here of Merck shipping line showing containers moving around the world, stuff that is moving around the planet is not moving around the planet at ever higher rates than ever than, than before. It's moving around because um, of the capitalization of the world, global financial integration, which started to increase quite markedly from about the mid-1980s. That is the capitalization of projects that allows large bridges to be built, um, new cities in China to be built, requires amassing of capital in ways that were never possible before, uh, but also uh, is the basis for the shifting of stuff around the world. So as economic development happens, um, so does the amount of stuff that's moving around. Uh, is there a limit to this? Of course, economists are thinking about this and working on this, and uh, there probably is, but uh, we'll have to wait to see what kinds of conclusions are drawn. This global financial integration from the mid-1980s is more or less um, map, maps onto the rise in obesity rates from the, from the 1980s, the rapid increase from the, in, in the 1990s and acceleration, um, and uh, and uh, the increase in obesity, um, not just in the Western countries, but also in the uh, rapidly uh, developing and emerging nations of the of the global South. As setting nineteen eighty as a baseline, gross domestic product has increased dramatically, uh, improving most people's lives, but also increasing levels of uh, of obesity. De Vogley from uh, Michael Marmot's group have looked at the impact of economic globalization on uh, on obesity rates uh, as measured by changes in, in body mass index. And they found that the increase in gross domestic product, that is general wealth, has had the strongest effect of increasing on uh, increasing obesity rates from the 1980s. Um, but economic globalization also plays its part. It has a strong um, underlying uh, effect on uh, increasing obesity rates. Um, globalization also um, uh, is uh, resulting in increased inequality in many parts of the world. So de Vogley went on to look at economic globalization, inequality, and body mass index across 127 countries. They found that as economic globalization was happening, um, this had a, a, a bigger effect on obesity rates than, the, uh, than the, the absolute rates of inequality within countries. So globalization is something that has a weak effect on overall increasing obesity rates, but when you relate this to inequality, it is a much stronger uh, effect than, uh, than, than rates of inequality. Now, another aspect of insecurity um, an aspect of insecurity that we can look at is food insecurity. And we'd expect food insecurity to be 
uh, related to undernutrition. But there is a paradoxical, paradoxically seeming relationship between food insecurity and adult obesity um, in the industrialized countries. In the United States, um, about 15% of households are food insecure. Um, Households that are food insecure in the United States engage in varying coping strategies in relation to food and diet. So less varied diet, engaged in food assistance programs and using food banks, uh, but above all, having uh, disrupted eating patterns in what they do. And underpinning all of this is the high extent of uh, ultra-processed foods, high in energy density, high in sugar, um, high in fat, and so on, that we all know is related to, um, to, uh, to increasing obesity rates. So food insecurity is concentrated in women when we look at the United States, that the relationship between food insecurity in the United States, not so much in adult men, but much more among women. This is after adjusting for age, ethnicity, education level, household income, marital status, employment status, number of children in the household, the relationship between food insecurity in this case um, is there, regardless of whether you, uh, you, once you control for, even after you control for all of these things. So it suggests that food insecurity, which represents a modifiable social context, has a relationship with obesity independent of education level of income. What are the possible mechanisms? Well, first of all, overcompensation when food is available, so that overall food intake's higher. Um, evidence for this that food expenditure and energy intake increased dramatically after food stamps have been received in the United States. Um, that cyclical food uh, consumption is associated with increase in body fat, decrease in lean, muddle, lean muscle mass, and faster weight gain. Weight cycling, putting on weight, losing weight, due to food insecurity, might result in more efficient energy metabolism, increasing body fat storage in relation to food storage, food shortage, sorry. Ultra-processed foods, these are the high in fat and sugar, cheap foods um, um, are freely available, and food insecurity is associated with low food expenditure, low fruit and vegetable consumption, and overconsumption of ultra-processed foods. This again can result in higher energy intake and lead to obesity. Food insecurity is also associated with negative psychological consequences such as anxiety and depression. This is independently of socioeconomic status. And this, these negative psychological consequences um, can contribute to obesity. So this takes us to evolutionary explanations for uh, insecurity feeding. So as a modifiable social context, insecurity and obesity can be explained in a number of possible ways from an evolutionary perspective. Through uncertainty, feeding because feed, food is not, uh, uh, food security is not, not, uh, not, not clear. Seasonality feeding, subordination feeding, binge eating and stress relief. So to go to, to these one at a time. Insecurity feeding, the um, best example comes from, from birds who eat a huge amount in relation to their body weight and eat even more when food is plentiful or when approaching winter. So short, shorter seasons trigger um, uncertainty feeding. <coughs> 
This can also be related to, in humans, regular snacking that you eat because you're not, not sure when the next feed is going to be. <laughs> then seasonality feeding. One good example of that is bears and their ability to overeat in fall, ready for hibernation. Um, so in preparation for hibernation, they put on large amounts of body fat because they are going to lose nearly all of them, so much of it, across winter. The other category of um, insecurity feeding is subordination, is in relation to subordination stress. This is well documented in baboons. Robert Sapolsky, United States, has influenced Michael Marmot's thinking in relation to the Whitehall study and and uh, and uh, status ranking and, and, and poor health, even among people who are um, economically advantaged, as in, as in the Whitehall study. Then there's binge eating and disinhibition. Um, this can be seen as being in response to, from an evolutionary perspective, in response to uncertainty to food availability in evolutionary time, to psychological, uh, psychosocial stress, um, and comfort eating. So binge eating and disinhibition, I've written about this with, with Ellie Bryant, um, um, uh, thinking about the evolved mechanisms um, that may have been associated with this um, in relation to one of the most fundamental insecurities of food, especially in seasonal and unpredictable environments. So as we all know, in recent decades, there's been improved food security in industrialized nations and emerging obesity, and they've both become deleterious for health. Binge eating and disinhibition then are no longer responses to uncertainty in food availability as they would have been in evolutionary history. Rather, uncertainty and insecurity in everyday life in present-day society are likely, lead, are likely to lead to disinhibition, binge eating and obesity through linked physiology of stress and appetite. So this leads us to the idea of comfort eating in relation to psychosocial stress. Um, Gibson in 2012 showed that comfort eaters show vulnerability to depression, emotional dysregulation and a need to escape negative affect. During negative affect, they preferentially consume sweet, fatty, energy-dense food, and this gives them some protection against stress. And this is evidenced clearly um, through physiological measures of um, suppression of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis response. HPA, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal response. Activation of this may further drive appetite for those palatable foods, resulting in weight gain. So the, how does it work? The hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access in the regulation of energy balance shows that with chronic stress, um, there's increased levels of cortisol. Um, these inhibit um, uh, energy expenditure, inhibit uh, dietary restraint, restraint, promote food reward, uh, promote food intake and food uh, food selection for dietary energy, which results in energy balance and can ultimately lead to increased uh, fat storage, especially in relation to the effect that cortisol has on the increased insulin secretion. So <clears throat> it leads over overwhelmingly towards increased visceral fat storage. <coughs> 
There are various models of food insecurity and psychosocial stress and obesity. Um, And these models all act as metaphors. They're not straightforwardly um, neutral, that there are balancing models that look at you know, body weight as a balance and also invoke models of justice and morality. Um, There are cycle models which are um, reflect uh, a homeostasis through through cycles. And there are normative models that reflect through Belke that uh, represent things as uh, as uh, as uh, as uh, deviations from norms or, or or returning to norms now statistician george box um once said very famously all models are wrong but some are useful so i'm really really intrigued and love to work with the idea of models and models as box said um are useful but useful for what uh all models are contingent upon understanding, uh, are developing understandings of something in particular context, scientific context, social context, political context, whatever the model is about. They attempt to universalize, but few models are universal. Some models change with time and are uh, negotiating tools. So, for example, uh, the Nova Nordisk uh, Corporation, when taking a drug to advancement, works through many different models, and these models change across time as the negotiations that involve moving from research to to trials to uh, eventual uh, production of pharmaceuticals change as other um, uh, stakeholders in the process become involved. So models change, they evolve, they change. So, Let's take a look at some of the models for food insecurity and obesity. Um, Dinuratel have put forward a process model that shows that uh, that states that if um, uh, resources for adequate food uh, are, are poor, then food insecurity um, can can lead to hunger or not. Um, food st- stamps uh, can break this cycle to improve food security, so food stamps can save the day. Um, alternatively, if there are no food stamps, so they're concerned about food stamps um, and, uh, and, uh, and, and obesity, uh, without food stamps, people have to do, have, develop coping strategies which are physiological, economic, um, psycho- psychological, um, and also involve physical adaptation to feast and famine cycle, having food, not having food, as I said before. So they're both positive and negative, and so can lead to obesity in some, but not in everybody. Okay, that's a process model. Uh, a multi-level model um, has been put forward by Finney Rutten and colleagues, um, which frames food insecurity at one level within uh, an agency uh, structure, so obesity and its mechanisms, uh, and the outcomes associated with it, morbidity, mortality, psychosocial, cultural, all sit at a lower level, at the individual level and familial level. So obesity, child in childhood, adolescence and adulthood, all related in the household, within the family. The mechanisms can be psychological, uh, physiological, behavioral, and so on. Again, all operating at the individual level and at the interpersonal level, at the household level. Then superposed on top of that is the structural factors like poverty, environment, policy, and so on, that impact on individuals and families. So this multi-level model um, is um, 
can be can describe poverty, food insecurity, and obesity at uh, at a higher level, um, a structural level, and at a level at a, an individual level. So it's a structure and agency model. How do the two relate to each other? So finding the variables which can cross the bridge those two those two levels determines what is actually understood about the relationship between higher level structural issues and individual level factors. So another kind of model. Another kind of model is a process model that Hemmingson has put forward for um, psychological and emotional distress in obesity, childhood obesity, where socioeconomic disadvantage and adult distress leads to disharmonious family environments and distresses the offspring and the family. And psychological and emotional factors then lead to uh, lead to uh, uh, a whole range of responses, including maladaptive coping behaviours in Hemmingson's formulation, which um, lead to um, upregulated appetite, uh, reducing energy expenditure, um, and emotional eating and so on, which again can ultimately lead to obesity. Now, as I said, these three models all have traction. Of course they do. Um, but they are conceived for different purposes by different people. The fact there's no one model um, indicates that, in fact, um, no model is right. They are right for their particular purpose, and we should always keep this in mind. Okay, I'm going to now turn to inequality, insecurity in relation to social welfare. Uh, starting with the idea of welfare regimes. Welfare states are varied and have very different histories, and these histories are important. The fact that in Denmark, for example, um, the social welfare, the idea of social welfare goes back centuries, and so it's not like uh, social welfare... Uh, imposed upon a country in the last 50 years, the effect of social welfare at the societal level will be different because there's a more deeply seated and embedded um, uh, understanding of social welfare and its value in countries like uh, like Denmark. So for good or bad, um, Gosha Esping Andersen, um, Danish economist, um, created a welfare regime typology and he's the best uh, economist of welfare regimes, and he really put this into three types, the social democratic type, the conservative type, and the liberal type. Social democratic type is, is best characterized by Scandinavian uh, nations, um, where any kind of uh, welfare targeting is for the entire society, where human rights are based on universalism, everybody has them, and the state market relationship is primarily on the state. Compare that to the liberal model, the Anglo-Saxon countries, where the target group is low-income households. That is, if you're targeting welfare, it's not universal, it's not for everybody, it's specifically for the people most vulnerable or at most risk. Um, the state market relationship was a primary focus on the market. Um, so very, very different markets versus the, versus the state. In the middle are conservative countries, which are the traditional continental European countries. The best example I think and think of immediately is Italy, um, where the, uh, the state market relationship is somewhere in between the two. 
that there's a market-based system with the state with state support, but also knowing that things like family and tradition um, also help to uh, uh, provide social welfare within society. So about a decade ago, uh, in Oxford, we carried out a study on welfare regimes and obesity across many different countries. Um, this meta-analysis showed us that, uh, first of all, there needs to be an access to cheap energy-dense food. That is the predisposition. It couldn't the relationship between inequality and security and obesity couldn't work without there being plenty of energy-dense food that was cheap. Um, economic insecurity um, is then can, can, can play out. But then when we look at um, the relationships between economic inequality and economic insecurity. Economic inequality is less important across these countries, the industrialized countries, than economic insecurity. Of economic insecurity, the most important types are skills insecurity, representation insecurity, insecurity and income um, insecurity. That is, if you lose your job, can you be, retra can you be retrained to do another job? Do you have a union? And can you uh, feel secure that your job will take you through many, many years, even into old age? Another type of insecurity that's associated with obesity in our study was, um, was health insecurity and unemployment insecurity as being the most important. So in the United States, Obamacare was not just about um, health care. It was about a restructuring of society because to improve health security in a country increases security, a sense of security across everybody in that country. Okay, how can you reduce inequality and, uh, and, uh, and insecurity? Well, taxation is a very good one. We know that in the Nordic countries, um, taxation is a major instrument to in reduce inequality. So in Denmark and Sweden, for example, taxation reduces inequality very, very significantly, much more than it reduces inequality in the United States and the United Kingdom, for example. Does government spending ameliorate inequality and obesity? Well, we did an analysis across 36 industrialized countries and found that uh, it only partly reduces economic inequality. And so taxation to reduce obesity can only have a partial effect. Now, that's in some ways obvious because there are many different routes to obesity and its uh, economic factors are, uh, feed into um, a large number of them, but not across uh, all of the factors that are associated with obesity. Of course, we know um, there are many environmental genetic factors that uh, that uh, are also related to obesity. So that's perhaps not not unexpected. Um, so it's not just about government government spending. Within Europe, uh, we did a study of obesity and insecurity and welfare regime across the uh, across the European Union. We found that um, obesity by welfare regime in Europe also varies enormously. Um, something like 60% more obesity um, in Anglo-Saxon countries than in the Nordic countries and the Scandinavian countries. Um, 
the price of food, cheap, uh, energy-dense food, is also much, much lower in the Anglo-Saxon countries than in the Nordic countries. Inequality rates, economic inequality, also much higher in the Anglo-Saxon countries than in the Nordic countries. What's interesting also is the number of people working more than a 48-hour week is again something like 60% higher in the Anglo-Saxon countries than in the Nordic countries. Unionization is less than half the rate uh, in the Anglo-Saxon countries than it is in the Nordic countries. Um, so you see there's a whole range of, 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 of welfare differences and obesity differences and, inequality and differences in inequality between the Nordic or Scandinavian and the Anglo-Saxon countries. Now we did uh, an analysis of obesity rates by these, by various insecurity measures. So uh, food price, inequality by the Gini coefficient, work, um, people, proportion of the population working more than 48 hours a week, um, state health care, the, the uh, percentage that uh, of the, uh, the the population able to, 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 to take and access uh, state health care, uh, unionization through representation and pensions, these were our variables. What we found that that obesity and security association was was differently associated uh, for men and women for women it was obesity was associated with long working hours the stress of having to work long hours it was also associated with negatively associated with state health care the better the state health care um, the lower the obesity rate so that mirrors what we were saying across all the 11 industrialized countries that we looked at um, in, uh, in in our more broad paper on welfare regimes and obesity across countries. For men, what we found was that it's a lack of representation was more associated with, the, with, with obesity. That is, the insecurity that comes with not having a job, uh, a, a, a job security into the future, and not having a union to help represent you into the future. Okay, so that's welfare, uh, insecurity, and, and uh, inequality across countries. I mentioned globalization a little bit earlier, and there's a whole range of, of new things that are starting to emerge. Um, recent destabilization, we can interpret as being uh, anti-globalization things that are happening in the world. So the election of Trump the emergence of you know the, the the British population voting to leave the European Union, Brexit, can be both interpreted as protest voting, but also as anti-globalization events. And there's evidence of similar anti-globalization events happening in in many other countries, in Austria, in Denmark, with the with the the, the high uh, popularity of the the People's Party in most recent times. That people you know, are scared of globalization. Um, what has this to do with obesity? Well, I did an analysis of adult obesity rates according to presidential results for 2012, prior to the, the last election, and showed that in the states where people, where the Republicans are, are voted into power, there are something like the, the the obesity rates are something like on average four percent higher than they are in the states that are are um, uh, that return a, Demo a democrat um, okay that's 2012 
2016, repeating the, the same process, uh, what I found was that the difference in obesity uh, rates across the Democrat states and the Republican states was something like uh, 6% uh, uh, greater among the states that voted Republican. So the, uh, so there's something about Republican voters um, broadly that is associated with obesity. What is also interesting is that we've just had the um, midterm elections in the United States and the states that swung to Republicans generally had higher obesity rates and the states that swung from Democrat to uh, from uh, uh, Democrat to Republican in the last election and swung back to Democrat just now had among the lower rates of obesity among the Republican states. So the there's something about obesity that we could almost use as a predictor of of uh, of um, uh, political preference and the psychological and social factors that that uh, are associated with political preference. So inequality, insecurity, and voting rates, um, adult obesity rates. Um, across the states in the United States were analyzed by McCann in 2012 and showed that obesity prevalence was significantly related to both psychological factors and sociodemographic, fa sociodemographic factors. The sociodemographic factors um, accounted for most of it. So 54% of variance was due to socioeconomic status, the proportion of uh, the population that was white, and the level of urbanization, all of these things related to obesity status. So poorer people, um, people of non-white ethnicity, greater proportions of poorer people, people of non-white ethnicity, um, associated with higher levels of obesity. The psychological factors that were associated with them was lack of openness, um, neuroticism, insecurity in short, um, agreeableness influenced by other people, uh, which together accounted for another 17% of obesity rates across the different states in the United States. So voting preference is associated with these factors that are also associated with, uh, with obesity. So sociodemographic factors, uh, but also um, neuroticism, lack of openness, which are, uh, can also be associated with insecurity. In the United Kingdom, Brexit is somehow happening. I don't know why. Um, in it, it's um, another big anti-globalization vote, um, like the voting in of, uh, of Trump. If we exclude Scotland and just look at England and Wales, then the uh, vote for Brexit across the country more or less maps onto levels of obesity across the country. In the Golden Triangle, Oxford, Cambridge, London, this is the place that had uh, the greatest number of people wanting to stay in the European Union and probably still does, and also the lowest lower levels of obesity across the country. In the north of England, um, where there are high levels of unemployment and uh, and uh, and uh, the higher rates of people voting for Brexit, uh, then the obesity rates are also ha higher. 
feeling threatened by the world um, is one thing that um, has been associated with the vote for Brexit. So who voted for Brexit? Um, Alexander Betts, a um, sociologist at Oxford, gave a TED talk on exactly this and has done a good analysis of who voted for Brexit. Well, in short, it's less well-educated, people of lower socioeconomic status, people living in deprived areas, people with a provincial outlook, and people who fear for the future. So paradoxically, it's exactly the people who um, would benefit from uh, the European Union and do who voted against it because of a fear of the world and the rapid globalization being controlled by other people that they, that that uh, they simply don't understand. So, and again, exactly the same pattern that you see associated in large part with. Uh, with obesity, lower education, lower socioeconomic status, people in deprived areas, but also the people who are insecure, if we can interpret, interpret fear as insecurity. So the implications of such destabilizations, anti-globalization movements for obesity, um, are that the personality traits and sociodemographics of voters who want to take back control are also those um, who are more likely to be obese. We don't know what anti-globalization will do to food prices. We don't know whether it will move towards increasing prices of uh, high energy dense foods or decreased prices um, because of the nature of the global food system. So neoliberalism will persist within all of the countries, whether they vote for leaving the European Union or whether they uh, vote for Trump. And this will um, um, increase inequality and probably increase insecurity across countries. So we have a whole range of issues that some of which will increase the likelihood of obesity, some will decrease them. We're in the middle or at the start of an experiment where we could seriously examine how these, these, these new trends in the world are impacting on obesity, uh, both to increase it and to decrease it. Okay, so I've talked about the UK, the United States, the world, and Denmark, and it's also especially about Denmark, because here I am in Newborg, um, talking about obesity and security and inequality. Um, Denmark's brave new world means cutting its fabled welfare. The discourses about welfare in Denmark continue. Um, uh, I don't know how things are right now. I don't know how things will resolve, but to cut the welfare state is to create a whole set of new problems, including problems surrounding um, uh, surrounding obesity. We are indeed moving into a brave new world with respect to uh, with respect to politics, welfare states, and uh, and insecurity. Um, so, with that, I will I will come to a stop.